Kathy and I were able to get away for a few days um, uh, last week. And uh, we didn't go far, but we did go away, which was a good thing. And for the time that we were away, we were exposed to something that normally we almost have no exposure to whatsoever. And that is cable TV. And as we watched cable TV, I was reminded more often than not of Psalm 101 verse 3. And I'll let you look that up on your own. But it was almost an immersion for us, at least for me, into secular culture and thought. And almost all of it for me, in my perspective, was negative. And one thing that particularly stood out to me was the vandalization of Christmas. Christmas has been stripped of, of if it's meaning, it's been tagged to the point of no recognition any longer. It's been ransacked of any sort of biblical um, connotations whatsoever. In the commercials that you watch, or in the baking shows that are produced, or in the Hallmark movies, or in the, movie, or the music that's playing, one is hard-pressed to find a single reference to how the Bible would interpret Christmas and these days of Christmas time. The only reference that I was aware of as I watched some of these baking shows or a few of these Hallmark movies, yes, I watched a couple Hallmark movies while we were away, was that in the background there was often a Christmas carol that was sung. But what struck me was how the words of the Christmas carol that was the background for these movies was often so contradictory to what was actually being shown on the screen. And so Monday morning as I sat down in my office and I began to prepare of all things um, Genesis 19 to preach today, Sodom and Gomorrah, I changed direction. And I needed to remind myself after being inundated for a few days by this secular culture, I needed to remind myself and I want to remind you as well that the only reason we have anything to celebrate this time of the year and at the very heart of Christmas is the fact that unto us, a child is born. Not only will this be the theme of uh, the sermons for the rest of this month, the Lord's Day services, but as a staff, we determined that we would also uh, set aside our normal um, practice of uh, staff devotions and instead follow along with John Piper's um, reading from 2013 Advent readings. And I love the very first line of his introduction to these Advent readings, which you can find on our Facebook Connect page. But he said, Advent is for adoring Jesus. That's why we remember Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus. And Advent, then, he says, is about adoring Jesus. A little bit later, he says, and what Jesus wants for Christmas is for us to experience what we were really made for, seeing and savoring his glory. Oh, that God would make this sink into our souls, he writes. Jesus made us to see his glory. And that's what I hope that over the next four weeks we can do a little bit of, is to show something of the Savior's glory, so that once again we can adore him the way that we ought to. There's one more quote that was in the first reading from this series of readings in his little Advent reading books, was this. He says, build God-centered anticipation and expectancy and excitement into your home especially for your children. If you're excited about Christ, they will be too. If you can only make Christmas exciting with material things, how will your children get a thirst for God? Bend the efforts of your imagination, he writes, to make the wonder of the king's arrival visible for your children. 
That's in part what I hope to be able to do is bend the imaginations of our heart to make the king's arrival visible for you and I this Christmas season. The reality about uh, this Christmas season is that God was born into the world. Christmas is not about the Savior's infancy. It's about his deity. The humble birth of Jesus was never intended to be a facade to conceal the reality of God or that God was being born into this world. Those are startling words for some. I don't know if you've never heard this before. Maybe it's the first time you've heard anything like this before. But Christmas is about the reality that God was being born into the world. You won't hear that in many of the shows that you watch or the baking shows or the the Hallmark movies that are out there. And I can only imagine what might be going through some of your heads right now. No way! There's no way God could be born into this world. That's the stuff of science fiction. That's just way too out there for me. If I had a thought of it earlier, I thought of it Wednesday, which was just not enough time, but I would have loved to put together a little video crew. And we would have gone through uh, Parksville, and of course we'd have to wear masks and all that stuff, but I'd love to get people coming out of a, a shopper's drug mart or out of a thrifty's restaurant and simply ask them a question along these lines. Um, what about the baby Jesus? Have you thought about it? Was, was he a, a man or was he God? Was he human or was he divine? And just find out the kind of responses that we would get from people. How do you wrap your head around such a statement? How do you explain the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it, including you and me, that he came into this world as a tiny baby? It's an act that the world, the corporate world, tries to wrap its head around. How does one begin to understand God becoming a human? How does one understand how he who was infinitely rich would become poor, he would assume a human nature, and enter into a world who he knew would reject him and kill him? Even more conflicting, can you explain how such a God could become a baby? How God would embrace human flesh. Yet he did. And in doing so, he did not give up or diminish his deity. That tiny infant that was born into the world was in the fullest sense of the word and in every way, God. Yet in every sense, he was a baby. He cried. He needed to be swaddled and cuddled and cared for. Like any other baby, he needed the attention of his parents. He was fully human with all the needs and emotions common to every human. And yet he was fully God, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful. And you say, well, how is that possible? I don't really know. How can both be true? Well, the Bible tells us that both are true. That's what we mean when you hear the word incarnation or God incarnate as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's the enfleshment of God. This baby Jesus is truly divine. And this divine Jesus is truly human. And the full reality of that is worked out for us and explained in many ways in the New Testament, particularly in a verse like John 1.14, where it says there, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, the word became flesh. 
Well, you might say, well, who or what is the word? That, that seems kind of strange to me. What, what is that? Well, you read at the very beginning of that chapter this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That Word, that eternal Word, that Word that has always had been, became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, what God is telling us through John is that the eternal, pre-existent Son of God became flesh. And this occurred through Mary and the virgin birth. This was the means of the incarnation. And we don't have time today to, to talk about the virgin birth at all, but it's the virgin birth that explains the incarnation. It's the virgin birth that is necessary for us to understand how God took on human flesh. Notice how this scripture says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What does that presuppose? Well, it presupposes the prior existence of Jesus Christ. It affirms his divine status. The word was God. Jesus did not become God. He always was God. The apostle Paul says he was in the beginning the very nature of God. But something remarkable is also said. said it says, and the word became flesh. You see what it's saying? It says Jesus... The eternal Son of God became something he was not. He became flesh at one particular decisive moment when he was conceived and then born of Mary. And so the incarnation means that he who never began to be in his specific identity as the Son of God began to be what he eternally was not. It's summed up in another way, in uh, Paul in Colossians, where there he says, God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. Or in another place in that same book, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches about this baby that was born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. That's what the Bible teaches us about this child, that he was fully God and fully human in a single person, the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to just take a couple moments and unpack both of those for us, maybe some of the implications of this, because they are so helpful as we work our way through this time of Christmas again, to combat all the stuff that we are hearing out there that tries to betray these truths or tries to suppress these truths. The first is simply the fullness of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning God. As I've already said, the biblical testimony is consistent and leaves no other room for conclusion other than that Mary's baby, Jesus, was God in the flesh. Often the knowledge that he possessed was beyond human knowledge. At times he knew what was in people's hearts. He knew Nathaniel before they had met. He knew the deepest secrets of a woman who he met at a well at Jacob's well. Furthermore, the proof, works that he did were convincing proof that he was God. His first miracle was an act, act of a creative act of turning water into wine. 
He healed the blind. He unstopped deaf ears. He multiplied fish and bread to feed 5,000 people. He raised the dead with a word of command. He was able to forgive sins. There has never been another person like Jesus. So much in the New Testament points to his deity. But few texts do so like Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 to 20. Listen as we read these words. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look back to verse 15 for a moment with me. Just the phrase that it's used. He is the image of the invisible God. That's crazy. But that's what Paul tells us in the person of Jesus Christ. The invisible God is made visible in Christ. The invisible God was made visible through that baby that was born to Mary. After he had been raised from the dead, he was interacting with the disciples, and one of his disciples didn't believe in who he was, or he still hadn't come to realize that who Jesus was. And he said, well, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The invisible God was made visible through Jesus Christ. They didn't simply see an outline. They didn't simply see a shadow that kind of wafted by them as they were sitting around a table. No, they saw God. Nothing was lacking. No diminishment. The perfect image of God. Don't let your thinking run away from the truth as you wrestle with the description, the firstborn of all creation. I just thought it important to at least say a couple things about that. This is not saying that Jesus is a created being, not in the least. The word firstborn is prototoikos. It's a word that describes rank or position, not origin. And so what God is telling us about Jesus is that he has all the privileges of the highest rank or of the firstborn heir. The world and all that is in it is his. He inherits it. It belongs to him. He has the right to rule it. The psalmist articulates it this way. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so we declare about Jesus. He is what? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the heir of all things. God has promised everything to his son as an inheritance. And through the son, Jesus Christ, this whole universe has been created. I was thinking about that for a moment. Think about what Paul says and think about that in relation to this little baby that was born and then that grew up into a young boy and a young man. It says that all things were created through him and for him. Now, now think that through for a moment. The child that was born to Mary was the creator and sustainer of this whole universe in which we live. All things were created through him and by him 
and for him. Without him, the world would fall apart. I was thinking this through a little bit. I've been contemplating, for various reasons, the size and the vastness of the universe, and I know very little about it. But you know that if you were to hollow out the sun, you could fit 1,300,000 planets the size of the earth into the sun. Christ made them both. He made the earth and everything that's in it and on it and under it, and he made the sun. Consider the number of stars that are in the universe. I just looked this up briefly yesterday. Do you know that the, the observable universe is absolutely huge? It's estimated to be 46 billion light years radius. It's estimated to contain about 10 to the 22nd stars. This number is so vast that even using a computer that could count a trillion of these every second, it would take over 300 years to count that high. That baby that was born to Mary made all of that, controls all of that. In fact, as Isaiah says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you thought about that? That that little baby that was born created this universe and every star and planet in it and names them. I thought back on the, from the macro scale to the micro scale to an article and I looked it up that I had read by John Piper a number of years ago. An article, a meditation that he wrote on Job chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Job says, but as for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Now, what would you describe as a great and unsearchable thing? If, If you were going through your head and you were worshiping and honoring God and you're saying, my God does great and unsearchable things, what would you do? What would you say? Well, this is what Job said. He gives rain on the earth and says water sends water on the field. For Job, one of the great and unsearchable things of God was rain. I'm not sure I would have thought of that, but picture yourself maybe as a farmer in the ancient Near East, in arid land, almost desert-like land, almost no lakes around, no rivers around, and every year you plant your crop. And the only way that that crop will ever uh, uh, germinate and then grow and then produce a harvest is if rain falls from the heavens above. You have no source of irrigation, you have no rivers, you have no streams, you have no lakes. And so you plant your fields. Well, where does that rain come from? And of course you might say, well, the sky. You say sky? Well, yeah, water will come out of the clear blue sky. Well, not exactly. Piper goes on to say, well, water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over 700 miles and then be poured out from the sky onto fields. And you say, well, carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, That would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,160 gallons, 
which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. That's awfully heavy. And so how does it get up into the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets there by evaporation. And you say, really? Well, that's a nice word. What's it mean? Well, it means that water sort of stops being water for a while so that it can go up and not down. Well, you say, well, I see how it goes up, but then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? Well, it says water starts becoming water again by gathering little dust particles between 0.00001 and 0.0001 centimeters wide. You say, well, that's small. You say, well, what about salt? Salt? Well, yeah, the Mediterranean Ocean is a salt water. That would kill the crops. Well, what about salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. And so you say, well, the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out all of the salt, and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on a farm. Well, it doesn't really dump it. If it dumped one billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles down a billion pounds of water in little drops. They have to be big enough to fall from about one mile or so without evaporating and small enough to keep crushing the wheat stalks. And that's just rain. That little baby that was born to Mary is the one that created the water cycle. He created everything. God stepped into this world that he created and sustained. And you might say, so what? It really doesn't matter that God was made flesh and dwelt among us. That the baby that was born to Mary was God. What makes all the difference in the world? It makes all the difference for the world. And it makes all the difference for salvation. Because only somebody who is infinitely God could bear the full penalty of all the sins of those who would believe in him. Salvation in the Bible is never described as a human achievement. It's a divine achievement. As the book of Jonah reminds us, salvation is from the Lord. There's no human being, no human creature. In fact, nothing in the universe could ever save mankind. Only God could. Or more necessary even, a mediator between God and man must be truly and fully human and truly and fully human God in order to represent both sides fully. And that's what Paul tells us about Jesus Christ, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us extraordinary things about this baby, that he was fully God. It's astounding for us to work that through and think that through and, and meditate on that. Do that for the next three or four weeks. Secondly, the fullness of man the humanness of Jesus is never in doubt in Scripture. Never in doubt. The eyewitness to his humanity is undeniable. He took our nature. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Isn't that amazing today? We, so many people live in fear of death, and yet... Jesus has come to destroy the power of death. 
that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh man, how many people are enslaved to their fear of death today? For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about this for a moment. It really matters. Jesus entered the world of matter. That is, he had a human body. His body had exactly the same biochemical composition as our own. Exactly the same anatomy and physiology. The same central nervous system. The same sensitivity to pain. It was a human body with a genetic composition similar to ours, although it had a unique code as we all do for himself as Jesus as an individual. To this genetic composition, his mother made the same contribution as any human mother makes to the child that she gives birth to. The rest of his DNA was, was um, contributed miraculously through a creative act of the virgin birth. True, Jesus was a first century Jew, but it's equally true that his mother, through the umbilical cord, he entered into the life stream, so to speak, of the human race and the whole created order. As a result, he entered into the world of human matter, of flesh and blood. And through his body, also became vulnerable to physical privation and pain and at last physical death. But he also had human psychology. I don't know if we often go there. We're okay with a body, but he had human psychology. That means a number of things. For one, it means that he had a human mind. Subject to the same limitations and wonders as any other human mind. He was able to reason and to think. He grew in wisdom and understanding. He learned by observing the world that he was in and listening to, beginning with his parents and then others. God revealed things to him as he does to us through his Holy Spirit. I read this last week, and I've been trying to wrap my head around it for a number of days now. Even now, at the right hand of the majesty on high, Christ's glorified mind does not fully understand the glory of his own divine nature. That's not meant to trip you up, but one day we will have a glorified mind, but we will still throughout eternity be amazed at the glory of Christ and never fully understand it. And Christ in his human mind will also be amazed at the glory of Christ. He will always be fully God and fully man for all of eternity. He also shared in human psychology. He experienced a whole range of human emotions and experiences. He knew hunger and fatigue. He marveled. He wept. He knew what it was to be troubled in his soul. He experienced deep emotion when he prayed with loud cries and tears. He was sorrowful even unto the point of death. He was literally so terrified of an imminent encounter between himself as the sin bearer and God in his holiness that he shrank from this cup with horror that exceeds any horror that we have ever known in our life. 
as Ron wrote, emotionally, he went to the outer limits of human endurance, so close to the outer absolute limit that he was almost overwhelmed. The lesson for ourselves is priceless. We are not called to be ashamed of our emotion or of its expression in tears. The Son of God understands and legitimizes our emotional pain. Does it matter to you that God was fully human? Does it change anything for you to know that Christ shares a human mind and human psychology? Even more, you read about Christ and relationships. And this point is particularly important as we think about the isolation that so many people are experiencing today. We've endured almost nine months of various forms of isolation, and the end may be in sight, but maybe we've not seen the worst of it yet before that end comes. And what do we read about Christ? Well, we read that Christ chose 12 men to be with him. When he went to Gethsemane to pray, he took three of them to be with him because he didn't want to be alone. In the hour of his greatest need, he wanted human company. All that he asks for is their presence. Come, be with me. You read in the Bible how Christ loved human company. He had male friends, female friends. He loved to be with kids. He wept for a city that rejected him. He didn't avoid vulnerability. There was nobody more vulnerable than Christ was. One wrote, we can avoid all the pain in life by avoiding love. The Lord was prepared so to love as to be vulnerable, and he was hurt at last, cruelly hurt. Do you know that, that Christ knows the pain of abandonment? One of the twelve outright betrayed him. The three intimates that he, he spent most of his life with, or much of his life with, forsook him and fled. And in the end, there was nobody at the cross to offer him encouragement and understanding. He knew the full horror of infidelity and treachery. Loved ones, this is a picture of Christ. The Christ of Christmas makes all the difference in the world. It was this man who dwelt among us. This is what it means that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ didn't simply stop by for a short little visit and take off again to heaven. He actually dwelt among us for 33 years. He lived in our environment. Think about that for a moment. He lived in our environment. He came into our world of sin. He came into a world where he could see human sin. Hear human swearing and blasphemy. See human diseases and observe human morality, poverty, and squalor. He came into a world of sin and misery and death. Not a perfect world. We might say, well, of course he would come into a perfect world. But he didn't. He comes into your world and my world. Listen to the words of Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod. Let us never imagine that God does not understand. God's Son took our nature. He entered into our experience. He knows what physical pain is. He knows what emotional and spiritual pain is. He knows what the loss of God is. He stood in outer darkness, in the place where there is no comfort, the place of the absolute why, 
where needing God as no man had ever needed God, he cried out and God was not there. Bearing such a burden that the world has never known and left comfortless. You and I will never be able to go beyond his pain. Our darkness is never more than his. Our wise are never more bewildered. Sometimes we may have to ask, why me? And part of his answer is me too. See what the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As the psalmist says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Again, this is what Donald McLeod says. He knows our nature from the inside. He's been where we are. He's walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He fought Apollyon. He's been in darkness where there's no light. He can look down on us in all our struggles, turn to his father and say, I love this line. He can turn to his father and say, I know exactly how that woman feels. He's not only a shepherd, but a lamb. And what he saw and felt and suffered here on earth is etched indelibly in his memory, sustaining a sympathy we can never outreach. See, the first question of the gospel is not accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The first question of the gospel is do you know that God is real? Because when you know that God is real, that changes everything. Why do we want to bury the truth about Christmas? What, what benefit is there to society to, to, to hide the baby, to smother the baby, so to speak? Why do we look away from the baby born to Joseph and Mary? I thought of that song and I changed the words just a little bit. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't give thought to Jesus shared my human frame. This is so much a critical part of Christian faith that John has written twice and I'll only read them once. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So much more to wrestle with on the humanity of Christ. Let me just end and make a transition to the Lord's table as we reflect on Philippians chapter 2, which is the text that Pastor Andrew just read to us a little bit earlier. If the decision to take on humanity was not enough, and we might be able to somehow make sense of it, as I said earlier, if, if God was coming into a perfect world and taking on the form of a perfect human being in a perfect world, we might be able to wrap our heads around it. But Jesus took the form of a servant when he became a man. He went lower still as if the manger were not enough, or were not low enough, and the angels must have thought one day as they blinked, possibly, and if angels blink, I don't know, but they might have blinked in astonishment. If they might have been busy and all of a sudden they looked down and there's Jesus in a manger. There's the Son of God in a manger. 
It must have been hard for the angels to wrap their heads around what they were seeing. But nothing could have prepared them for what would come 33 years later as the, as the word came that you got to come see this. Jesus is, is in Gethsemane. And one of them had been sent to comfort him and help him. And hours later, there came news of this sham trial and of a brutal beating. And now their master and their creator is hanging on a human cross and he's bleeding. And they must have been saying, well, surely this is the end of it. But no, they heard this unimaginable cry echo through heaven. Father, why have you forsaken me? How how can this be? They must have thought. How could God turn away from his one and only son? It's difficult for us, isn't it, to imagine such a gigantic and staggering fall. A giant step from the throne to a stable, from a stable to a cross, and then from a cross to utter darkness. And the angels must have wondered, When will this ever end? There's a song that we sing from time to time. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on my cross, my burden gladly bearing, he died to take away my sin. I learned this week two new words of two new men that lived hundreds of years ago. Words used to describe the unimaginable, unbelievable fact that God died on the cross. Luther spoke of the divine incognito, the unrecognized or the unknown God. That was the God on the cross, unrecognized. Calvin spoke of the crucis, the hidden Christ, because on Calvary his glory was obscured. As I thought of that, I thought those words apply to both his birth and his death. The cross and the cradle were the last place in the whole wide world where one would look for God. I don't think there's anything that looked less godlike than a human baby born to a human mother in a manger. Or a battered, bruised, bleeding man on a cross. At least in the stable, all his deity was not obscured. It seems like the shepherds were aware that there was something unique about this baby. The wise men had some inkling. But there was nothing that looked less than a divine act, than that transaction on the cross. So let me ask you, do you look for God in either of these places? Do you look for God in a baby born to Mary? Or do you look for God who died on a cross? God made flesh, the creator, and the sustainer of the world. The cross in the cradle. That's where we find the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There we glimpse the Son of Man who 
came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There we witness grace beyond description about a God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not freely give us all things? There we see how in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And so I implore you today, be reconciled to God through the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the only way to have your sins forgiven and to be at peace with God. Unto us a son is born. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it describes our need, the way that it describes you. I thank you for the way that it helps us understand, even though we will never understand the full extent of it or the depths of it, but it helps us understand why it is necessary that, and why it matters that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Father, I pray that Again, in these weeks that are ahead of us, when we are bombarded with so much that at the very best ignores and at the very worst intentionally tries to suppress the truth about Jesus Christ, that we will fight and that your Holy Spirit would remind us again and again that in Jesus Christ, God took on human flesh so that we could be reconciled with you. Help us, I pray, work that through in Jesus' name. Amen.